This episode explores aspects of sexual harassment, racism, and bullying in the workplace from constituents, including donors. It contains depictions of misconduct, harassment, and the misuse of power dynamics. Please listen with care. Thanks for joining Graham Pelton's Make Mission podcast, where we bring together philanthropy scholars and fundraising practitioners to better understand the world of nonprofit development. What is being studied? What trends affect donor decisions? We'll bridge the gap between theory and practice to understand the future of philanthropy and how to make mission. Hello, philanthropy academics, practitioners, and pracademics. Welcome to another episode of Make Mission. I'm your host, Anna Shalia. Today, we're discussing the uncomfortable yet very real experience of sexual harassment by donors in the nonprofit sector. These experiences leave fundraisers feeling harassed by donors and exploited by employers that pressure them to do, quote, whatever it takes to obtain donations. This is based on research from Dr. Aaron Beaton, who is here with us today. Aaron is an associate professor at the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at The Ohio State University. She studies the ways in which the nonprofit sector and its organizations combat, reflect, and sometimes reproduce structural inequalities. Dr. Beaton's research builds organizational theory by holding up nonprofits and the nonprofit sector for critical inspection, drawing on institutional, social movements, and critical perspectives to understand the nonprofit sector's role in social and economic inequalities. Our practitioners are Karen Isbell, Vice President for College Advancement at Kalamazoo College, and Chelsea Megley, Chief of Staff for Advancement for University of Oregon. Karen Isbell joins Kalamazoo College as Vice President for College Advancement in September 2020, where she guides the college's fundraising, alumni engagement, and marketing and communications efforts. She's a former board member and past president of APRA and is a noted speaker and author with CASE and AFP, among others, along with her work with APRA. Karen previously served as Associate Vice Chancellor and Campaign Director for the University of California, Irvine, leading the planning and execution of the university's $2 billion comprehensive campaign, Brilliant Future. Prior to UC Irvine, Karen served as Associate Vice President for Development at the University of Michigan, playing an integral role in the planning and execution of the university's $5 billion plus Victors for Michigan campaign, particularly within the areas of prospect development and IT infrastructure. She began her career in arts administration and currently serves on the board of the Kalamazoo Symphony Orchestra. Chelsea Magley is the Chief of Staff for Advancement for University of Oregon Advancement, where she leads a team specializing in recruitment, career planning, professional development and training, organizational development, and employee relations. She has coached, advised, and trained many development professionals from interns to deans to vice presidents. Chelsea is a leader in research and discourse on the topic of talent management and development and has been featured in several publications, including Case Currents and the Association of Healthcare Philanthropy. Welcome all of you to the conversation today. We're going to jump uh, right into the research side of this conversation. Erin, in your article, Whatever It Takes, Sexual Harassment in the Context of Resource Dependence, you interviewed 36 professional fundraisers to examine the problem of sexual harassment by donors. 
What we found when we went out and talked with fundraisers about their experiences of sexual harassment is, yes, they experience sexual harassment from colleagues, um, and they most certainly experience sexual harassment from donors. What we were probably most surprised to hear about was the fact that fundraisers were being asked to put themselves in more precarious or vulnerable situations by their employers, by their nonprofit employers, asking them to dress more provocatively, um, act differently, uh, just appear and act in ways that would be pleasing to donors in potentially a sexual way. Um, so some of these fundraisers were feeling really uncomfortable with the situations that they were asked to go into with, with having drinks or dinner going to someone's home, especially if there had been situations in the past where there was, you know, some sexual harassment or sexual harassment undertones. And so when the employers were asking fundraisers to do this, um, it felt very much like, you know, they were being asked to um, not only put themselves in harm's way, but being sort of forced to do it in a very sexually provocative way in some cases. And so that that really um, surprised us more so than any of the other results. And so we wrote this paper um, called titled Whatever It Takes based off a interview quote that we had from a fundraiser saying, you know, it's my job to do whatever it takes to get that donation. Thank you for sharing that. Later in our conversation, we'll certainly talk about more of your more of your findings within this research, but also how you defined boundary spanding and the role of fundraisers in boundary spanding, as well as resource dependence, since that is a, a theory which us scholars in the studying philanthropy understand as a theory that we use quite a bit, but rarely in this context. Chelsea, would love to learn from you more about your experience in this space. What got you started and, and how are you involved with the Collaborative for Respectful Workplaces in Higher Ed Advancement? I come to this space from a background of talent management, which is really about a combination of making sure we're high performing, but also looking at the pipeline of the talent we have, diversifying our organizations, making sure we have healthy cultures. And so in in 2018, a bunch of us talent managers came together because Me Too was really building momentum. And we had been kind of working in silos, our isolated incident models for a long time. And so we came together, uh, brought in our fundraising colleagues, brought in our systems and alumni relations colleagues um, to form this collaborative for respectful workplaces, which is a number of institutions, about 22 colleges and universities in the US and in the UK coming together to build dialogue around this issue, but also build best practice recommendations based on the reality of what we're facing in these large, medium, and small institutions. We're not a consulting group. We're really here to push the industry towards addressing the, the severe power dynamics in, in our work and preventing and responding to incidences of misconduct and harassment appropriately. So I came to the collaborative there. I'm one of the coordinating chair uh, members, so we try and keep this collaborative moving and listen to our institutional members on how to move forward. And then I've been in the throes of implementation of our own prevention and response initiative here at the University of Oregon. So that's in, in many ways helped inform the collaborative uh, as many of the other institutions have of, oh, what's your stumbling block with your Title IX office, for example, because there's a lot of higher education administrative protocols that have to get established to take hold for any cultural change. Aaron, by your nature as a qualitative researcher, 
you are digging deep into the lived experience of these gift officers and they're sharing their stories with you. What were some of the surprising stories that emerged from your research in this study? Yeah, it's really important to me to give voice to the interviewees and their experiences who have um, shared them with us. So I, I pulled out just a couple quotes that I thought that that I'd share with everyone. These are um, actually coming from the paper, Whatever It Takes. And I just wanted to demonstrate how sometimes the sexual exploitation can be sort of innocuous um, and that it can be more explicit. So here's an example of um, what an interviewee said when she was talking a bit about this idea of sexual exploitation. So she said, there are times when it was stated like, oh, you definitely need to be in this meeting because he's crazy about you. Or we definitely have to take you because this person is enamored with you. You can definitely sway him. So this is a little bit more innocuous. It might seem um, as if there's nothing really wrong here, but there's really an underlying sort of sexual exploitation about it. And then here's a little bit of a, a longer quote um, that came from um, one of our interviewees where she's talking about being an event at an event and the sexual exploitation was far more explicit. She said, one of the directors of development for our medical research foundation came in and she said, so-and-so saw Renee and said he would pay a million dollars if he could get a chance to get with her. She said to me, she's like, yeah, I don't care. If he'll give me a million dollars, I'll give him whoever he wants. That was such an example of a woman, another female fundraiser willing to put their female colleague out there as bait. It was just this reinforcement for me that it's not just the men in the industry that are a problem. Some of these women are perpetuating this idea that we're glorified prostitutes. That's how it can feel. It can feel that way. It feels a little bit like pretty woman. You're going out with somebody who's rich, wealthy, has money, and wants to have a pretty girl sitting next to them at dinner but it comes with the expectation that there's something attached. This is not going to go away if we have women like that in leadership positions and organizations who will not deal with these problems head on or make jokes about it. Our leaders in this advancement space need to protect their staff. They need to understand this dynamic and also need to rely on their leadership skills as being mission focused, not donor focused. There's another side to always putting the energy and effort on making the donor happy. Yeah, for me, the opposite of donor centricity um, and synonymous with mission-based based leadership is putting your beneficiaries at the center of everything that you do. Um, so it shouldn't be donor centricity. It should be about um, the communities, about the beneficiaries, about the clients, about the students or patients or people that are being served. So the more that we can think about them and involve them in the organization and give them power um, in the organization, especially if it's in a way that might attenuate the power of the donors, I think that's really um, effective way forward. Karen, you're in a unique position in this conversation as a vice president, as an advancement leader. We'd love to hear from you your experience, how you became involved in the Collaborative for Respectful Workplaces, but then also how you're uh, working with promoting and creating a safe and respectful fundraising environment. 
So I joined the collaborative a couple of years ago while I was at another institution and when I moved over here to Kalamazoo College uh, I asked to remain uh, as a part of the group. I really wanted to make sure that um, you know a lot of my my colleagues and peers were at much larger institutions potentially with resources that small institutions like small liberal arts colleges may not have um, to address some of these issues and and then subsequently joined the planning group um, that works to determine, you know, what content are we bringing forward to the rest of the collaborative? What is the focus of our discussions and how are we moving the work forward, as Chelsea indicated? And one of the things that we did as a group um, after a couple of years of doing some virtual conferences, we were able to come together this past spring to really start thinking a little bit more strategically, like let's map out what needs to happen over the next, say, two to five years. Uh, what are we as the collaborative members doing? What partners are we bringing in to help us expand our reach? Um, uh, and, uh, and how do we get the word out? And so one of the things that has happened as a part of that is that in my role as a advancement program leader, how do we start this conversation with other leaders? I mean, I think the collaborative is made up of a lot of folks who are sort of boots on the ground who are bringing their own experiences or their colleagues' ex experiences to bear. But in terms of thinking about where this work needs to start, which is at the top of the advancement organization, we haven't had a lot of, of participation. And so it's most important that vice presidents and vice chancellors and other leaders of, of advancement programs really understand the nature of this issue. and. You know, I, I was able to do a presentation on this topic over the summer uh, at the Case Summit, uh, which is meant for advancement leaders. And the first slide in my presentation was, no one talks about it, so it must be taboo. So, you know, it was one of those things where it gets talked about, I believe, sort of in general, and Case has, you know, several years ago, also at the same time the collaborative was coming together, Case was putting together a zero tolerance policy, which we might talk about a little bit later, because there are sort of challenges with implementing a zero to tolerance policy. There's so much gray in everything that we're gonna be discussing today. And so our first and foremost is we've got to get the message out. So we're thrilled to have this opportunity with today's podcast, but, sharing with other advancement leaders all of the things that are built-in risk factors for the work that we do and we ask our teams to do, how we navigate that inherent power dynamic and manage that up to our presidents, to our boards of trustees, and really bring about awareness so that our institutions are prepared when an incident happens to respond appropriately in ways that are going to not put the institution at risk, protect uh, our employees, and and make sure that they just understand that there is there is a plan in place um, to help them. We we focus very much internally on you know what happens inside our organizations. We all have very robust sexual harassment policies for if you're being approached by a, a coworker or colleague. Uh, we don't often then go that next level and talk about these folks who are external to our organizations and on upon whom we are dependent for resources. Karen, I'm a longtime fundraiser, and I think donor centricity is just part of who we are and how we do work. How do you see this 
ingrained behavior of donor centricity play out right now in this context? Certainly in this there has always been this dynamic of, you know, we think about our work as marrying the passion of our donors with the capabilities of our institutions to sort of implement what, whatever those passions may be. And I think over time, particularly as the gifts have gotten larger, that balance of what are the institutional priorities versus what are the passions of the donors, those scales have tipped a bit. And so uh, in an effort to continue to bring in larger and larger gifts, uh, we have ceded, I think in some cases, more and more power to our donors and their desires and their wishes. And that permeates the entire institution, not just our major gift fundraisers, but our boards of trustees, our events planners, our advancement relations folks, even our gift administration folks. Um, I was just uh, in a meeting yesterday with a faculty member who was feeling a little uh, overwhelmed by a, a, a donor to their department and what they said, I'm, I wasn't really sure at which point, at what point I could say no um, to that donor um, or not respond or or ask them to sort of back off a little bit. And so uh, I think that it does permeate uh, our institutions because uh, at every level, but certainly small private institutions are, we we live on tuition and philanthropy. And you know those are our, our main re revenue streams. And to the point that Aaron made earlier, those institutions um, who have built uh, fundraising programs that are, are essentially, we're putting ourselves and our teams into highly social situations with these uh, prospective donors, and we ask them to go out and create a sense of perceived intimacy with those in, in, uh, individuals. Um, that is seen as being desirable. That's that's the way we do our work. And those boards then may not be in a position to feel like they can walk away from someone who has the potential to make a, a major or a principal level gift. And uh, we heard over and over again from the folks in the collaborative as we've been discussing this issue for the last few years is, uh, I think one of the, the quotes that I used in a presentation I did recently was mission above discomfort. You have to suck it up to give, get the gift. And so that is the mentality that a lot of us bring uh, to this work. I've heard the term power come up several times, power dynamic, the power of donors, right? And I think something that uh, may be helpful to point out is that in the research, when we talk about sexual harassment for quite some time now, we've um, talked about it as an exercise of power. You don't sexually harass just because you have power, you do it to maintain power. Um, so sexual harassment itself is very much about power and power can be an exercise of power related to gender, which is what we often think of when we think of sexual harassment. But there is also other forms of racial power. We've talked about resource power. There are so many different sources of power and they really come to bear um, in this fundraising context in, into these dynamics. And so breaking down these power imbalances is the only way to really address this issue. And it's the reason that we titled, Megan, um, my colleague and I titled our report on sexual harassment, speaking truth to power in fundraising, because we felt that um, we really need to break these, break these uh, power cycles. And I 
often get asked, you know, this question about um, what are the policies and procedures that, that we can do? And I think that those are important. Um, Karen already mentioned, you know, making sure that donors are named in sexual harassment policies. Those types of small steps are important. But the bigger thing is this culture shift about being able to say no to donors um, when it makes sense to do so and empowering and trusting fundraisers that they know when the line has been crossed. Um, what I have found really unfortunate um, in talking with fundraisers, and I, I can identify this as, as a woman and someone who came into this research having been sexually harassed as a part of my previous profession in, in marketing, you know, you know when something just is kind of off about someone, right? You have this sense, you have a sixth sense about these things. Um, and when a fundraiser comes to their superior and says, this doesn't feel right, I feel uncomfortable with it, that doesn't get respected. Um, I've had so many stories um, in interviews where um, a fundraiser came and said, you know what, I don't feel comfortable with this person. They said X, Y, and Z, they touched me this way, or just said, I have this feeling and I just don't feel comfortable. And they weren't trusted, you know, they, the response was something like, oh, that's just how he is, you know, he's just, you know, a touchy sort of person or, you know, it's, it's not that big of a deal. Um, and so when we let even these smaller things go and don't take them seriously, it sort of bubbles up. So I think that trusting fundraisers to tell us when something isn't right and being able to say no, even based on what might seem like sort of small incidences um, is, is really important. I think, Erin, that trust is also on the burden of the organization, too. And that's something we've encountered a lot as we've been in our implementation at the University of Oregon is everyone is coming from a different place and is in a different you know generation, career experience, experience directly with harassment or not. Um, and for those who have lived through harassment or at our institution or at another institution and have been let down, we're already starting with broken trust in the new process we're standing up. And we have to demonstrate consistent transparency and value building with them. And they may never engage in the process to raise something again because of their previous experiences, because that trust has been so broken of being let down, bringing something up and being dismissed, being encouraged in the instances that you were describing of, you know, being encouraged to just withstand misconduct in order to get the gift that prevents someone from trusting that their supervisor will ever do the right thing or that their organization will ever choose them over a donor. I think even beyond that, you know, we've certainly heard from institutions uh, or from gift officers who have said, you know, um, well, what all what might happen in that situation is that that leader says, oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Don't worry, I'll deal with that person. So it, you don't have to. And so what that does is it teaches that staff member that a to be a leader you have to become somehow seasoned enough to like deal with inappropriate behavior or tolerate it. And that harassing donor who gets reassigned to the VP now has just had their bad behavior rewarded. And um, not, not to mention that then that's a potential sort of metric because our gift officers live by metrics. That's a potential gift that they don't get to bring into the institution. So that is, you know, sort of hampering their career prospects further down the line. And so there are so many things wrong with that. 
that a leader might come to that and thinking, oh, I'm going to help my person by taking that off their plate. Um, and there are all of these reasons why that actually doesn't that doesn't help in the long run. And that example, Karen, is exactly why I know it's not the most exciting first step, but the first step is to talk to a lawyer because those practices we've historically done, uh, we'll just have a male fundraiser work with this person. Um, this will just be managed by the VP perpetuating or actually a practice of legal discrimination because you're impacting the access to to success for along the lines of identity. And so it's it's really important for us, like some of the things we think instinctively of zero tolerance, we'll just say it's not allowed and we're going to cut off any relationship when any line is crossed doesn't work, but neither does just kind of moving things around and creating a cushion that prevents someone from being successful in their career, or being positioned for leadership because they're, they no longer have access to a, a volunteer or donor that's still working with an organization and shaping its mission. I just also like to add that um, from uh, dealing with sexual harassment um, perspective, um, and I, I tend to think through a feminist lens or feminist theory, an important consideration here is what does this person, this fundraiser, how do they want to handle it? Yes, they're coming to their superior for help, um, and they they may not want to handle it alone, but they don't want you know the responsibility taken away from them. And so when sexual harassment happens, a choice has been give, taken away from someone. Their bodily, their bodily autonomy has been taken away from them. Taking other things away from them is is just adding harm, right? So making them a part of that decision about okay, how should we handle this going forward, and making that decision together, I think, is the most appropriate way to deal with it. I was having a conversation with a fundraiser earlier today about this subject, and knowing that we were going to be all meeting today to record, and this is a conversation that comes. Up up quite a bit amongst women in fundraising. We know that women, that our fundraising profession, especially in higher education, is comprised mostly of white women who start in the profession sometimes sometime in their early 30s, but that uh, positions of leadership are still held by men. But this work, fundraising work, is predominantly done by women. And so it makes sense that this is a conversation that we would be talking to each other with. And when you start at an organization, you hear things like, oh, make sure you don't go to that dinner by by with yourself with that guy. Hey, what, you know, we were going to see him. Um, hey, maybe we should, we should talk over here. And we were talking about this fundraiser and I were talking about how those stories were passed to us as young gift officers, and they never lived in a contact report. I'd love to hear your your experience. I can't possibly be alone <laughs> in this. I'd love to hear the ways in which you've seen this play out in your organizations and what can be done from a more systemic, sustainable way for new gift officers to succeed in this work so that this doesn't happen to anyone else. Part of the uh, work of the CRW uh, or the collaborative over the past few years has not has not been um, just about sort of how do we address the sort of the frontline end of the problem, but also we made a choice to make sure that some of the members of the collaborative are folks in advancement services who are dealing sort of from the research or the 
the database management side and thinking about, you know, sort of legally and, um, you know, sort of as an institutional practice, how are we documenting this better? Because that very phenomenon, Anna, that you just mentioned was one that has been repeated over and over at, at multiple institutions. There's a sort of an underground network of communication that helps keep people in the loop, but the problem just keeps getting passed down the road because we haven't actually documented it or done anything to change it. And so, you know, I think part of our objective has to be as we're bringing, you know, it out of the space of taboo and bringing it into the light is really just having open conversations with your gift officer team, with all of your frontline folks, whatever roles they're in and saying, we recognize that this is an issue. Um, and here is, you know, our institutional plan to address that. Here is how we should deal with that together. When we spoke uh, with colleagues at the case summit uh, earlier this summer, we left with, you know, we sort of had discussions around three areas. One was how do we empower and equip our, our staff to respond in the moment? Because sometimes you're sort of taken aback and you're like, hey, did I just hear what I thought I heard? And what do I say? Um, and how do I manage that? If they, whether or not they respond in the moment, how do we as leaders address that team member who reports an incident after the fact? Um, and then as we think about our institutional response, how do we frame this conversation for our executive leadership and our boards so that they're actually backing us up when we say, this is what we're doing to move forward. And this is how we're gonna handle these kinds of situations um, that the board's not going to undermine that um, because they, they don't understand it or they don't, they don't buy into the need for um, a robust plan for, for response. We've been really deliberate about respecting the Whisper Network, not because we want to extend it, not because we want that to be how uh, people choose to engage in it, but, but the Whisper Network is how people kept each other safe. And so when we talk about wanting to move things into our flagging system in our database, we talk about moving it out of the Whisper Network with a lot of respect because this was how individuals creatively wanted to protect their colleagues. They wanted to reinforce, you know, better standards of interactions of behavior. And we're reflecting that in a systematic way right now, rather than dismantling the way that, I mean, for generations kept women in particular safe. Um, and so I think part of the flagging system we developed is also in inspired by that. Uh, we are not trying to have an official judgment or label of someone and what they are or aren't. We are just creating parameters for how we interact with them, um, sometimes up to and including not interacting with them. That's going to prevent uh, any additional misconduct from happening. For all the reasons that have been stated earlier about the makeup of our profession um, and the preponderance of young women who are sort of coming into the profession profession and make up a, a large portion of this work, this does impact men as well. And so I want to make sure that we acknowledge that so that they are not feeling left out of this conversation or that this is something not for them, or that if they were to come forward with a complaint, that it would not be taken seriously because this is a, a woman in fundraising problem. So I want to just make sure that we put that message out there too. And I do think it's important, particularly as folks, um, you know, maybe experiencing this along some of those intersections of race and or sexual orientation or gender identity. So those are all things we want to make sure that, that have been a part of our conversations that need to be part of the conversations as we move forward.
Absolutely. And Aaron, you've you were studying this across the board and you're looking at these different intersections. What have you learned about that? Some very important things about um, intersectionality, particularly from our survey. Um, so uh, I, I really appreciate um, Karen bringing up this this idea of women versus men. Sexual harassment is thought of as a women's issue. And at least I can tell you very certainly within the fundraising profession, uh, that's not the case here. When we look at um, who's expe- experiencing sexual harassment, the LGBTQ plus population of fundraisers experience sexual harassment um, at even higher rates than the group of women uh, in the profession. Um, and I'll also say that on the intersectionality dimension, we looked at fundraisers of color in the survey as, as well. Um, and what we see there is that fundraisers of color are experiencing the most egregious forms of sexual harassment. Um, so when we think of sexual harassment, um, there are different sort of like forms or or levels, the highest being sexual coercion, which involves, you know, assault and things like that. Um, so for us on the research side, um, it's important for us to, it's our job to bring the data and be able to show leaders, you know, that we frequently get told like, this isn't an issue. Um, you know, when we even had fundraisers come to us, mainly older white male fundraisers come to us and say, I don't know why you're studying this. This isn't an issue. Um, and then we have, and then the younger women are saying, why are we still just talking about this? We need to do something. We already know this is an issue. So for us, it's about bringing the data and making it very um, emphatically clear that this is an issue. It is happening. Um, and I think that our next steps and, and research are that we're very interested in getting more deep into the intersectional aspects, specifically how um, experiences of sexual harassment can be racialized. Um, because there are fewer fundraisers of color, we've been having a harder time getting a large collection of data that we can use to demonstrate that. But the fundraisers of color that we have interviewed have made it really clear that um, the discrimination and sexual harassment come hand in hand together. Um, and so we're really interested in continuing to learn about that and also thinking about this issue broadly as issues of bullying and power use, not just of sexual harassment, um, because that opens it up to other um, intersectional dimensions, too. As we've been standing up our process, it's been about evenly split in concerns raised related to specifically sexual harassment, racialized comments or racialized macro or microaggressions, and just bullying behavior, inappropriate behavior in which um, in some cases, you know, institutions have let it go on for, for decades and decades and not addressed it. And that I will say, uh, I, I think, Karen, you and I had a conversation where this also worked with your board when we've been uh, talking to our volunteers about this, which we're in the throes of rolling that out across the institution. We present this not, uh, with them as our allies, not like, here, you all need to get in line, because oftentimes your volunteers have experienced that bullying or inappropriate behavior themselves from some of their peers. Um, and so it's about protecting our community and setting some standards of how we treat each other. And our donors, our alumni, our volunteers, our event attendees, they're part of that community, so they can be a part of this change. 
Chelsea, I don't know if you would agree with this or not, but I've found it interesting um, and really helpful to hear your perspective about taking the first legal step. Um, my understanding is that there's a lot of legal um, parameters around sexual harassment. Um, I'm curious around the bullying aspect, um, because my sense is that there's maybe fewer legal foundations to stand on there. Yeah. So so and, and even with sexual harassment, it, it it's a pretty big line that has to get crossed for there to be institutional liability from a discrimination standpoint, especially when the person is external to the organization. Again, not a lawyer, so this is not legal advice. Uh, caveat, caveat, caveat. Um, but um, bullying is is not, as long as it's not along the lines of protected class, is not something that is a legal call for response, but it is something that impacts how you can retain your talent. It is something that impacts the perception of your organization internally and externally. Um, and it is something that, you know, in a standard of a professional society, we shouldn't be standing for. We should be able to address bullying behavior, inappropriate conduct. I come from an HR background, so I'm not uncomfortable having conversations with people about like, hey, how you're phrasing this, how you're talking to people isn't appropriate and it, and, and we need to change that and I'm willing to work with you on changing that. Um, and, and I think this is just comes right back to that power dynamic because bullies have a lot of power. You don't have a situation in which someone can bully without being put on a pedestal at some way, in some way. And so a good relationship has two individuals working with each other and challenging each other on, uh, you know, how they treat each other and, and what their relationship is. And you can't do that when one party is on a pedestal. If a fundraiser or boundary spanner within an organization uh, experiences some type of sexual harassment or bullying from an external constituent, and they are in an organization where this topic has never come up, maybe off the bat, they feel that they're not going to be supported. What are the best practices for some form of self-advocacy? What can this person do? The first suggestion I would um, make is that it's important to talk about it with someone, and maybe you don't want to start with someone in your organization. Um, one of the things that we've been talking about as being very important is mentorship um, and being able to possibly have a mentor outside of your organization that you can talk to. Um, and, you know, pr professional associations may be helping to form those relationships and those um, mentorships, but I think it's important to be able to have someone to, to talk to when something happens and be able to make a concerted choice about how or if to bring it up within your organization. So we've been training our managers and we have continual training that, you know, this is a, a one and done. Now we have everything standing up and, and we'll never have harassment or inappropriate conduct again. Uh, I wish it was that simple. Um, but, but how we talk to our managers and how we talk to our employees is the first step is making sure the person's supported. So the first step is making sure that they are removed from a situation, that there's not immediate upcoming uh, contact while we're going through a reporting process that would put them further at risk, and that they have resources to take care of themselves and processing what happened to them, and then let them know how they can engage in the reporting process at the level of their comfort. They do not all have to go directly in front of a panel and share every detail of their experience 10 times. They can bring an advocate with them. They can have someone report on their behalf. So we really want to create as much power to that individual who's experienced misconduct as possible. Um, and for a supervisor, that, that comes down to sitting down, hey, can I get you some resources? 
Do you feel safe? Do you have upcoming conduct? That's not okay. I'm sorry that happened to you. And if you center that initial support, then the supervisor doesn't have to know the details of the reporting process, but at least the individual knows that their supervisor is going to stand by them. Um, and is expected to stand by them. And then you can have someone walk in and like, okay, here's how our Title IX Affirmative Action Office might get involved because of the details you shared, um, with the caveat that at any step of our reporting process, an employee can disengage. And we want them to, again, feel like they have a lot of power in that situation to define how they want to move forward. Um, because a lot of times in when something initially happens, what we find is uh, employee will either put some blame on themselves, which isn't fair to them. Uh, well, why didn't I do something in the moment? They'll try and dismiss the severity of an incident. So it wasn't that bad. I'm not sure I, it's even we're talking about again. And so we want to create a lot of time and space for them to process exactly what they would want, because when it comes to our reporting process, that's actually what we center in the determination of an outcome is what, what does that reporting employee want to happen? Um, and is there a way we can make that we can be good to that intention while keeping other people in the organization safe. Um, so, and what we find too in standing this process up, because we're a few years into it now, is you don't know what's going to come up for you. We don't know, you know, people as we've been doing, even just an orientation to our Bill of Rights, which doesn't involve any descriptions of misconduct. It's just, here's what you can do. You can remove yourself from a situation. You can request an additional person working at an event. Is sometimes people just need to step away because they haven't actually processed things that happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, and it's bringing up those memories for them. And it's their comfort level, their readiness to bring something forward, not our need to get it reported that, that we want to focus on. I would just add to that, and obviously, you know, Chelsea, you and your team at Oregon are much for, we're just at the very beginning of our journey here at K. So I'm certainly looking to you uh, and others as um, have folks who have sort of stepped into the breach and are living it and, and working through it uh, with your organization. Um, you know, on the docket for me this fall is to gather all of my external frontline folks um, together to to just broach the topic. When I went, before I presented my, uh, at a conference this summer, I, reached out to one of my more longstanding gift officers because I have a lot of new folks on my team. And I said, and I asked her because I just kind of wanted to know, I was like, has this been an issue here at our institution and what has been the response? And it was sort of a hallway conversation and she's like, can I come to your office? And then we spent the next 40 minutes with her sort of outlining things that she's done over the last 10 or 15 years to protect herself. And, and she finished that conversation by saying, thank you for, no one's ever asked me about this before. So I really appreciate just being able to to share what some of those experiences have been. And so for me, it, the first step is going to be just opening up the dialogue um, with that team, uh, because I think there is a lot of a sense of, well, I don't think it was as bad as, as all of that. And so you things slide and, and years go by and, and more and more things slide and then it becomes normalized behavior. And you just come to expect that this is how I have to live my day. Um, and so we want to start to roll some of that back, again, empowering those employees, and then making sure that if they go to their manager, that they feel that their manager, A, knows what to do. A lot of our conversations has been like, those managers, something gets reported to them, they don't even know what the next step is. And so we need to make that clear with our within our institutions. Um, 
But I think that first line, it, it's coming at it from both uh, so top down and bottom up approach, um, working with our boots on the ground to empower them and then working with leadership uh, to get them on board and helping them to understand um, their, their responsibility in creating these processes that we need to implement. Aaron, I'd love to hear what future research you're considering right now. You've touched on it a bit, but do you have future research that you'd like to bring up or do you have anything in your research that we didn't cover in our conversation that you want to make sure we discuss? Well, there's one thing that I'm really interested in in studying um, that is related, but potentially uh, a little tangential. Um, And that has to do with something, I think, Karen, you were speaking to the way that gift sizes have been increasing and increasing. Um, I see this strength and donor power coming from that space and that being very tightly linked to economic inequality um, and in society. And so um, something I'm really interested in studying and looking at more is trying to document the the gift size and the concentration of wealth and how that has shifted philanthropy and how that plays a role in this concentration of power that the donors have to wield. When that's together... We'll have another podcast episode. Karen and Chelsea, tell us more about how listeners can get involved with CRW's work um, and really what your hopes are for the nonprofit industry's response to this conversation. So as I mentioned, I think earlier, the CRW, a group of us got together in the spring in person to start working on a strategic plan. And I think there were a couple of buckets in that. And what came out of that was things that we as a collaborative, just to keep the work moving, we need to take this on ourselves. And so we'll be having a a fall virtual meeting of the group to start talking through the steps of that strategic plan and making some assignments and putting people to work to start uh, putting some materials together. Uh, So there was that sort of category. And then there was the, we need to do this, but we don't have, we're not big enough on our own. We don't have the resources. And so where can we partner? So we've reached out to CASE. Um, I think AFP is going to be potentially speaking to the group. Um, um, Some of the folks that that you worked with, Erin, in our fall meeting, just to, again, continue to spread news about the toolkit that was created, the donor bill of rights that's coming up um, that's being developed um, and then how could so we so that we have greater reach so there were the things that were like you know like more research we'd love to see some research specific to fundraisers and external folks within the higher ed space so that we as a sector can understand how pervasive because a lot of the mega gifts you see that I talked that we talked about they happen in the higher ed space um, it's usually higher ed or healthcare um, so but we don't we don't have a research arm so we need the folks who can who can partner with us on that work and then the third bucket of that was just about then how do we start to create some of those training tools that we can use within our organization so that we can start some of the work that is, for instance, happening at Oregon within our our various institutions and coming back and saying, here's what's working, here's what's not working, training for our fundraisers so that we can um, utilize groups like AFP, CASE, AHP, APRA, you name it, pick pick an uh, acronym, where we can start getting this content out um, so that those folks who are on the front lines are getting the tools that they need to be able to respond in the moment, whether or not their institutions are yet on board. 
Well, thank you all so much for your tremendous contribution to our profession, to our colleagues, uh, and to the work that you're doing to further support them and to grow our profession and make sure that everyone is working in a safe and healthy and supportive work environment. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for having us. Thank you for joining Graham Pelton's Make Mission podcast. Our mission is to elevate philanthropy so nonprofits can flourish. To learn how we do it, visit podcast.grampelton.com. We know this episode contained a difficult conversation about sexual harassment, so survivors can get help at www.rain.org resources. That's www.rain.org. Additional resources and contact information for the Collaborative for Respectful Workplaces can be found in our show notes and at podcast.grampelton.com. Thank you for listening.